Hello and welcome back to another episode of Bite Size Cinema. I'm your host RJ McCready and for this episode I'm going to be taking you guys back to the year in 1978 for some underwater action adventure. It's got explosions, it's got rubbery monsters, it's got fight scenes and of course it's got Doug McClaw. That's right guys, this is Warlords of Atlantis. So let's get into the diving bell, let's play you guys a trailer and I will see you guys soon. To safety. Starring Doug McClure, Peter Gilmore, with guest stars Sid Charisse and Daniel Massey. We'll not find it on any map, but you know its name. Atlantis. They defy an underwater world of tyranny and terror. From our dying planet, we journeyed across space. We brought our cities, our power and ambition. We are a master race. Can you help us get out of here? We're damned, mister. There's no escape. Let your mind join with us in the greatness of our quest. Serving the power of Atlantis. The power of Atlantis. Atlantis. McClure and Peter Gilmore join forces to survive a living hell below. Monster terror above. Now welcome back guys. So the synopsis for this film is a group of scientists attempt to find the fabled city of Atlantis. Along the way they encounter a giant sea monster and an alien super race that has plans to conquer the world. It's got a 96 minute runtime and it's classed as a action adventure sci-fi movie. And it was directed by Kevin Connor, who is a uh, British director and he is very familiar with this type of genre. He has made many a movie like this um, involving dinosaurs particularly and Doug McClaw. Um, he started off with The Land That Time Forgot, At The Earth's Core with Peter Cushing, uh, The People That Time Forgot with Patrick Wayne, which is the sequel to The Land That Time Forgot. And he's also made some horror movies as well, uh, one of them being Motel Hell, which came out in 1980. And the screenplay for this movie is written by Brian Howes, and he has done a lot of work with the popular uh, cult TV show Doctor Who. The film was backed by Columbia Pictures and EMI Films, which is a British film company based at Elstree Studios, I think. And... They started filming Warlords in 1977 and a lot of the filming was made in Malta, uh, particularly the island of Gozo, so a lot of it was um, actually filmed in real locations and not on set. And the island Gozo is another film location for another classic movie that's around about that time, that's Clash of the Titans um, 1981, which is another movie I need to cover at some point. The film had a modest $2 million budget and it didn't do too bad at the box office and it was rated as the 15th most successful movie in the UK in 1978. 
And critics like this movie too, and I've got a review here from IMBD, and it's quite a good review actually. It's only a mini review, and it just says, With rubber monsters familiar from the three other films, it's a fairly enjoyable ride with generally witty performances and plentiful action. And where else can you get to see Doug McClure beat up Cliff from Cheers? <laughs> I like that bit at the end, that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a fair point actually. And now I think about it, it's actually quite good to see John Rasenberger in any sort of movie and um, I think a lot of people forget that he's in this movie and he's particularly good in House 2 as the electrician dude which is a, again another film I need to have a look at at some point. So, But there you go, critics like this movie as well so it didn't do too bad. And um, whilst we're talking about the cast, let's talk about the cast here. So obviously we've got Doug McClure as I mentioned there, he plays Greg Collinson, he is our lead character in this. Uh, Peter Gilmore as Charles Aitken, Shane Rimmer as Captain Daniels, he's worth a mention actually because he did a lot of work for Jerry Anderson with the uh, Supermarination for Captain Scarlet, uh, Joe Ninety and Thunderbirds and he also did um, Scott Tracy, he did the voice for Scott Tracy in Thunderbirds, the uh, iconic Thunderbird 1 pilot. So if you're watching Warlords of Atlantis and you see the captain, you're thinking, where have I heard that voice from before? He is Scott Tracy from Thunderbird 1, so there you go. And going back to the cast, you've got the very beautiful Lee Brody, who plays Delphine in this film, and you've also got an actor called Michael Goffard as Atmir. And you may recognise him from Toby Hooper's Life Force, he plays uh, the Doctor in that, um, Dr. Bukowski. And he also plays one of the bad guys in For Your Eyes Only. So he's sort of, sort of like a sort of sinister looking character. Um, so there you go, that's uh, some of the cast to name just a few. And the soundtrack to this movie is done by a British composer called Mike Vickers, who I've mentioned before with Dracula AD 1972, which was one of my reviews. And he is famous for using synth with orchestras so when you listen to his music it's got a very special sort of signature to it which works really well I think it's quite good and he also did the soundtrack to At the Earth's Call which is another Doug McClure movie and that's a, that's a good track that's a good score um, like I say if you, don't even, if you come away you don't even enjoy the movie you might even enjoy the music and sometimes that can be the case in films or if you're really lucky, you might enjoy the film, you might enjoy everything about it, the story, the characters, the uh, soundtrack and everything, which in my case, um, having spoken about the production of this film, who's in it, who's directed it and the cast and everything like that, um, I don't think this is a bad movie, I don't think Warlords of Atlantis is bad. And the other thing, I was thinking about this the other day, it's, it's hard to tell whether this is a B-movie or whether it's a, an expensive production movie, it's difficult, so I'll probably say it's probably an expensive B-movie. And as I mentioned, this is the fourth film for Kevin, Kevin Connor director to work with Doug McClure, where he's worked in the other films such as um, The Land That Time Forgot, At The Earth's Core and The People That Time Forgot. And it's quite evident that this is this is different. It's got a bigger budget compared to the other films. And the other movies were made by the studio called Amicus. And Amicus can sometimes get mistaken for Hammer House of Horrors. When you watch the films, they're very similar. They're a very low-budget um, production company. And they made films such as uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The House That Dripped Blood, Asylum, and Beyond the grave and they also used um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushion so this is why sometimes they can get uh, mixed up to be like a hammer horror film 
So they made the first three films and then this one was like an independent one made by, as I said, EMI and Columbia. So you can see there's a slight difference um, compared to the other movies. But there is, you know, obviously um, Doug McClure is sort of like tying the bridge between them all. But going back to the roundup of this film, um, I watched this when I was a kid, so I'm probably slightly biased with this review because um, I loved it when I was a kid, when I was growing up, and you know, it's a proper old Sunday afternoon adventure. And um, it's probably the best um, Atlantis adventure movie where they actually go to Atlantis and they get trapped and they try to escape. And you've got the monsters, and you've got the bad guys, and you've got the good guys, and. Um, Generally, I think the film runs at a really good pace. There's no points where it sort of slows down or gets boring. It certainly ain't a boring movie, that's for sure. Um, and I did find some of the monsters quite terrifying, actually. I mean, you had the plesiosaur and the octopus, which were fairly sort of run-of-the-mill sort of monsters. I didn't really find that too suspenseful. But the one that really freaked me out the most was the um, swamp monster, which just sort of just just appeared from the swamp all of a sudden as they're trying to cross over and he, he, he was a show stealer for me him and the other um, swamp monsters that attacked the city and I think it's because um, again it's the sound effects that they used I think they used like a like a howling cat or something like that as the sound effect and I thought that was there was a real um, feeling of suspense and fear and thinking how, how the hell are they going to get out of this and they also use some um, real sort of mystery cases in this film as well, particularly the one with the Mary Celeste, the uh, the ship that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. So they tie that in with one of the main characters, uh, Delphine. Um, her and her father were um, the survivors of that fateful ship. So I think that's a uh, that's a good tie over of one of the um, the actual mysteries, which is still trying to be worked out up until this day. Every time you pull out a unexplained mystery book, you will find the Mary Celeste in there. So, um, so there there you go, guys. That is the production of Warlords of Atlantis. That's how it's got made. Uh, like I say, some of the cast, the director, all that sort of stuff. So let's have a look at the movie. Um, let's do a bite-sized review of Warlords of Atlantis. So the film starts off at the beginning of the 20th century and the first shot you get here is of a beautiful tall ship called the Texas Rose. And two British archaeologists, Professor Aitken and his son Charles, have hired Captain Daniels and his crew to take them to the Bermuda Triangle to see if they can find the lost city of Atlantis. You're also introduced to our hero, Greg Collinson, who's played by Doug McClure and he's an engineer and he has designed a diving bell which will help them find the lost city. On the first dive in the bell you've got Charles and Greg, they're attacked by a reptilian sea monster which is a believed to be like a plesiosaur and because the bottom of the bell is open the plesiosaur's head comes through, they get an attack, you get your first attack scene here and the only way they can deal with that is by electrocuting it so they electrocute it and they manage to kill it and stop it. And this makes me laugh this bit after this whole ordeal. Not the fact that you've just seen a plesiosaur that's been extinct for about 10 million years. Charles comes out and says, oh, he took my pencil. <laughs> that's it, guys. You know, the fact that he's still alive, no, he took my pencil. So there you go. <laughs> and then after this ordeal with a the plesiosaur, they come across a solid gold statue, which is proof that they have found the lost city of Atlantis. 
The statue then gets hoisted up to the ship and gets put onto the deck and then the crew hands, you've got Grogan, Fenn and Jacko and that's uh, you got John Rasenberg who I mentioned earlier who plays Fenn. They see the gold and they decide to um, hatch a plan to take the gold for themselves so they decide to uh, cut the ropes on the diving bell and let them loose. And then you kind of get like a bit of an Agatha Christie scene here where you just see a door open and the gun come through and the Professor gets shot, Professor Aitken gets shot. And then like some bad karma you get a octopus which attacks the ship and it's a pretty cool scene and the crewman and the captain they get taken by the octopus, they get taken down to the lost city of Atlantis and along the way the octopus takes uh, the diving bell with them. And the only two people left on the ship is the ship's cabin boy Sandy and the professor who is um, almost dying of his gunshot wound. But back in Atlantis you've got Greg and Charles who meet up with the rest of the crew and they are now castaways and they meet up with um, an Atlantean called Admir and his small army of uh, spear wielding guardians who wear helmets, you can't see their faces or anything like that but they're sort of made up, they look like sort of medieval warriors. Emir takes our heroes to safety and he takes them to the last remaining city because he explains along the way that there were seven cities but um, some of them have perished, one of them's empty and now this is the last remaining city and along the way they go across a prehistoric swamp which is protected by a creature called Mogdan and this is the creature I was talking about earlier, I thought this guy was scary when he came out, he just pops out from the swamp and pretty much steals the show but they um, they manage to cross safe, they get across to the city and when they arrive they get thrown into a dungeon except for Charles who gets taken to like the high priestess and they believe that he is intelligent enough for them to explain their origins and basically at this point they explain that they have come from the planet Mars, they come from a dying planet and they have basically formed the human race to fight each other so that the fighting between the human race improves our technology and the longer this fighting takes place and the technology advances this creates like a utopia for them to then ultimately take over the planet. And then back in the dungeon you've got Greg and the crew of the Texas Rose who make um, friends with Captain Briggs and he is the captain from the missing Mary Celeste. And he is the leader of the human slaves who have been captured by the Atlanteans and they're there to protect the city from the swamp creatures known as the Zargs. And Captain Briggs, he tells um, Greg and the crew that he will never be able to uh, return back to the surface of Earth because they have been implanted with gills behind their ears. Quite a sort of freaky scene when you see that. And you also meet uh, Captain Briggs's daughter Delphine who kind of falls in love with Greg so you get a little bit of a sort of love interest here in the movie. You then get a sudden attack from the Zogs and you get a pretty cool uh, attack scene between the slaves and the Zogs and they're using um, cannons and spears. But during this attack you get uh, Captain Briggs, he gets killed and he gets eaten by one of the Zogs as they climb up the wall and then as they climb up the wall they try to get into the uh, dungeon with... Um, Greg and the crew and you get one of the Zargs is trying to push his way through the um, dungeon wall but before he can eat the crew Delphine opens up the door and manages to help them escape 
and she shows them a secret tunnel which uh, leads to the palace and this helps them uh, go and rescue Charles. But whilst all this is happening, uh, Charles is enjoying his uh, visit to the palace. They put this uh, crystal helmet on his head and they're showing him the utopia of Earth and the, their plans and they ultimately want him to join. But whilst he's watching all this, Greg turns up, he takes on the Aleutians, he takes the helmet off uh, Charles and he smashes it on the floor. Charles wants to stay but then Greg punches him and knocks him out and um, he carries him out. And then as I get out of the palace, um, Charles regains consciousness and he says, you know, I don't know what was going on, they were interfering in my head and he now wants to escape. So our heroes, along with uh, Delphine, um, manage to retrace their steps back to the diving bell, but before that they have to cross the swamp. And they manage to uh, pick up some guns along the way, and you get a scene here where you get uh, Charles and Greg, they're shooting at the swamp monster. They manage to uh, repel it back, and as they're walking across, one of the crewmen gets killed. They manage to get away, and they get back to the diving bell. But when they arrive, they are surrounded by Admir and his guardians, and they are standing on the clifftops. And Admir uses some sort of telekinesis to use um, to cause like an eruption in the water, starts, starts causing these explosions. But the crew managed to jump into the water, and before Greg leaves, he speaks to Delphine and he says to her, Why don't you come with us? But she can't because she has these gills. So she. Um, Stays behind with a rifle, she creates a diversion by shooting at the Guardians and then Greg um, jumps into the water, he gets into the diving bell with the rest of the crew and he manages to start up the propellers and with all the explosions it kind of causes a whirlpool and they go into the whirlpool and they manage to get back through um, the way they came back in and escape back up to the surface to the Texas Rose. And you get a good old cheesy Doug McClure scene here where he sort of says to the diving bell, you know, thanks for getting us back. <laughs> but when they return back to the Texas Rose and before they can sort of, you know, open up the whiskies and celebrate that, that they've, you know, managed to get away from Atlantis, this is where Sandy tells Greg and Charles that um, someone shot the professor. And this is where Captain Daniels pulls out a gun and says, yeah, it was me that shot him. I was going to take the gold for myself and you're not going to go back with the gold. And then the crew turn the tables on Greg and Charles. But whilst all this is happening, this week the octopus comes back and returns. The octopus takes the gold statue and it kills Captain Daniels. It basically crushes him. And then with this gold statue, it starts smashing up the rest of the ship. And then the ship starts to sink. Greg and Charles manage to escape on a lifeboat with the Professor and Sandy. The ship sinks and then you've got um, two of the crewmen, one being John Rasenberg, they get away as well and they're just uh, hanging on the outside of the lifeboat. And this is where the film ends, you basically got um, our survivors with the two crewmen just hanging onto the outside of the lifeboat and then they just row off into the distance and that's it and then you've got like the closing credits of the movie. And there you go, guys. That is a bite-sized review of Warlords of Atlantis. So, um, yeah, as I said earlier, it's just it's a fun movie. It's a Doug McClure movie. It kind of um, it's on par with all the other ones, like say at the Earth's core, people at time forgot the land at time forgot. It's um, it's a good uh, quadrilogy of movies. Um, it does everything on the tin, runs at a pace. You got monsters, you got action. 
And I'd say probably the best time to watch this movie is probably on a Sunday afternoon after a roast dinner with, you know, a nice glass of wine or a couple of beers or something like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a good Sunday afternoon adventure movie. And um, could it be remade? Could we have a remake? Um, yeah, I guess we could do, really. I think um, I don't usually say, you know, films being remade, but I, I could probably see something like this having a bit of a... Um, modern day makeover and I think uh, the person who could have done this probably back in the sort of late 90s probably would have been uh, someone like Stephen Summers with the mummy movies that he made and you could even have had uh, Brendan Fraser in the role of Greg and you know Rachel Wise as the leading lady and John Hanna as the professor so yeah in an alternate universe I could have seen uh, Stephen Summers put that one together possibly but um, I've said this before um, I'm a massive fan of this genre it's um it's not a very popular genre in the market today. I don't know why. Um, it, I suppose it's what people are interested in at the time. But I think it will only take one film to be made to relaunch this. Um, a bit like the superhero genre. We didn't have many of those about. Um, then all of a sudden you had Marvel and that just went boom. And I think it will only take one film to be made. It will be successful and then all of a sudden it will probably go boom. And I guess if I was a director right now and someone says, you know, oh, Jay, here's a load of money, go and make it, I'd probably start remaking these films like The Land at Time Forgot, you know, like a U-boat submarine finding dinosaurs. And even the Sinbad movies, I think we're way overdue a uh, Sinbad remake. Um, so I think these films are just waiting to be done and I'm surprised no one has because I, I think you could possibly, if they're done well, you could possibly have a surprising hit there. And um, I think it could possibly be just the escapism that people need, especially today with everything that's going on in the world. So, um, but there you go, I'll leave it at that. So we'll just have to wait and see. So um, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, a little bit of admin. I am a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. So please go and check out all the other shows. I'll play a promo at the end. And... You can find Bite Size Cinema on iTunes, YouTube and many other players on the internet if you just punch in Bite Size Cinema Podcast. And the best place to find me or contact me is on Facebook if you've got any ideas for movie reviews or comments or anything like that. Just uh, yeah, look on the Facebook page. And uh, the next show which is coming up is a, like I say, I've got a guest spot with uh, Dan Bone and we will be covering the Masters of the Universe. And then after that episode, I'm going to be looking at doing Neil Bloomkamp's District 9. So I'm going to be having a look at a little bit of uh, modern day sci-fi, so look out for that. So there you go, guys. As I say, keep it bite-sized, keep it safe, and I'll see you soon. this show then make sure you check out the other great shows on the legion podcast network like cinema psyops cinema beef devour the podcast duncan and Bo come correct exploding heads horror movie podcast friday the 13th get slayed the hell ming power hour hello this is the doom show hero hero ghost show kill the cast underwater kaiju from outer space jerry hates action legion after dark 
mental health, obsessive cinema, discourse, pick six movies, the podcast by the cemetery, the podcast on Haunted Hill, the psycho-semantic podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.